Welcome to Financial Planning Explained. I'm your host, Mike Menninger, Certified Financial Planner, Founder and Owner of Menninger & Associates Financial Planning. Uh, I'm pleased to have a guest with me today. Uh, he's an attorney. His name is John Growth, uh, owner and founder of Growth Law Firm. And what John specializes in is a variety of different legal stuff, but property and uh, personal injury and things along that nature. So rather than kind of blow it and, and steal his thunder, because I know just reading his profile, there's a lot of things that, that he is capable of doing and has the expertise in. So uh, with no further ado, I'd like to welcome my guest, John. John, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Yeah, personal injury and all things personal injury is what we handle. Well, yes. uh, good to know, because you know what? Uh, I'm going to ask a question that I didn't know the answer to. I think I probably do know the answer to, um, but I'm actually dealing with one myself. Uh, 41 years ago, I had an operation, and um, the doctor left a piece of gauze up in my palate. It was in there for nine months, caused an enormous amount of damage. I ended up having seven different operations as a result. Uh, it's rearing its head again. Oh, my goodness. But fact is, again, that's after 41 years. There's nothing one can do to go back is it signed sealed and delivered it's like a double jeopardy yeah well not double jeopardy that's a whole different area of law that i have no clue about uh, but there are uh, certain rules certain statutes and uh, i guess the, the the legalese way of saying it is a statute of limitations and the statute of limitations in certain states could be three years sometimes it's two years if you're going after municipalities it could be uh, as little as 120 days, you know, it just depends on the on the state you're in uh, and where the negligence took place. There's also possibility of a thing called the discoverable or the, the discoverability rule. So uh, was the negligence discoverable at the time or is it something that it's rearing its ugly head years later? Uh, but even then, there's another legal term called the statute of repose. So all these things together yeah, you're out of luck. Sorry. So I guess what I mean by, I guess let me rephrase my question. Um, if in fact I did um, successfully win a lawsuit and then all of a sudden, you know, whatever the, whatever the situation may be, you know, you're injured for a particular thing, you go through the efforts, you sue, you win, and then all of a sudden a new problem or a resurgence of the existing injury comes back is it sue once and done you you have to include everything that first time okay. if you don't you're, you are sol yeah, yeah you are well it raises another question i have a friend and client who was in an automobile accident and really jacked her up pretty well and it generated a lot of questions that i figured hey i've got you here i might want to ask so for starters, I think she's disappointed with how it's going. And because of that, does she have the ability to switch lawyers midstream or does there come a point in time that it's no longer makes sense to do it? What's your thought on that? Sure. So, so the rule is that the file is the client's. So the client can take that bundle of documents, you know, you, you, you save or look at the old old way of doing things, you look at an actual file in a filing cabinet, and that client can take that and take that bundle of papers to any law firm that that person wants to go to. So at any point in the process, you can move. Oh, really? When I started my practice in 2010, I had left another firm, and my my 
theory was that uh, my business plan was that I was going to go, and I did, go to a bunch of different lawyers in the area and said, I don't care at what stage of the case it is. It could be five weeks before trial. You can get me on board and I will you know, um, take it to the end and I will try the case. So that's certainly possible. It's, um, it's not the best situation because you may not be able to find a, an attorney who wants to take on the case at that stage. Right. So it might be more difficult, but that's why it's important when you first start the process to know which questions to ask and understand which lawyers you're looking at and whether they can take the case from the beginning until the end. Well, and, and I suspect that it's a business decision that you make as an attorney. Um, you know, if you look at a case, you know, and if it's contingency, whether it be 33%, 40%, whatever the number might be, if you look at the case and say, well, I'm going to need to spend 100 hours on it, and it's only going to generate $1,000 of revenue, then it's something you obviously don't take. But now, right. what right. happened? The way that I look at it, though, is you never know what's going to happen in the future, you know, uh, and the human body is a, an interesting thing, right? So there are cases that I've taken that I thought were going to be small cases, and rightfully so, or hopefully so, I should say, because the the victim was that initially was not really severely injured, but then something happened later on where they there was an MRI where they found a tear, and then there was surgery, and that small injury became something really much different and the case changed. So um, that's, I look at hiring a lawyer like hiring insurance, um, uh, having insurance or hiring a financial planner. You know, you don't know what's gonna happen five years from now. You don't know what's gonna happen six months from now in your treatment plan. So if you have an attorney who can advise you and then if things go bad, then you know that you're protected. Well, that's what in this particular instance that I was talking about is you know, she gave me, she alluded as to how much this case was going to be worth, which raises another question because I think it was limited to how much the uh, other insurance company had um, as far as the other insur uh, insured driver, underinsured driver, what have you. Um, it's not generating that much revenue where the amount of money that she would receive as a settlement is barely going to pay the past doctor bills, no less all of the future doctor bills. Yeah. That seems unfair. Well, I, the most important thing that you can take from this conversation is protecting yourself with uninsured or underinsured motorist coverage. And if you own a home or you rent, having an umbrella policy on top of that. Because then you are in control of what that sum of money is. You're not reliant on what the at-fault party has at, as limits. That's in Wisconsin, for example, you, you can be fully covered and I'll do big quotations here, fully covered, but only have $25,000 in policy limits. Well, a flight for life, uh, a helicopter coming to save your life is gonna charge about $20,000. So it's almost all eaten up just with that. So you need to make sure that you have the right coverage. So when, and again, this goes back to financial planning, when you're planning for uh, the what ifs in the future, that you can protect yourself and be responsible yourself because you never know who's irresponsible and driving the car across the street. That's a very, very valid point. I appreciate you bringing that up because I didn't realize that I could do that. So if for some yeah. reason, and this is going to get into, and I want to ask you about tort versus full tort versus limited tort as a separate question, but what you're telling me is that if I am seriously injured by 
someone who is underinsured or uninsured that I could actually sue my own uh, umbrella liability protection? Right. So, so you, through your auto policy, you will have uninsured or underinsured. Right. That I'm aware of. And uninsured is just if the other party uh, stole a car and they have no insurance or whatever it is, and they are just driving with no insurance. Then your insurance is going to step in the shoes of the at fault party, and then I think that's significant because then you are adverse to your own insurance because they are standing in the shoes of. Right, that's correct. I'm suing my own gonna, insurance company. They ultimately will have the option of uh, uh, paying out to the victim, to you, and then they have to be adverse because they're going to try to go after, hopefully they will, just for responsibility's sake, uh, go after the, the at-fault party and maybe garnish that person's wages or go after their assets to get that that, that sum of money back. They're and trying to recover their yeah. industry in the law. There are subrogation attorneys and subrogation companies that do only that. Interesting. So, I mean, obviously the insurance company, and that's what I've learned all the way around, insurance companies don't like to give away money. Um, and so when they're giving away their own money, they're gonna wanna try to recover it. So, but what you're saying is that the only way is through uninsured and underinsured on your automobile policy. Correct. And, and to be honest with you, John, from my, my recollection, um, when you're looking at property and casualty or your automobile policy, that usually your underinsured or uninsured motorists usually like a coverage of maybe 100,000, 1,500, maybe a couple hundred thousand. With all due respect, John, that doesn't go very far. Oh, not, not at all. I can, what I often say is that I'm an insurance agent's best friend because I can give real life examples of um, people who are um, either successful executives, I could tell you a story about one of those guys. I could tell you about a woman who had horrific medical expenses. Um, she worked at a, a, as a cashier and uh, changed her life. Um, and there are two different examples there. The one person, um, he thought he was covered. He was a high-level executive, and he had $250,000 in underinsured motorist coverage. Well, in Wisconsin, in my state, you have to compare the at-fault insurance to your underinsured motorist coverage. So the at-fault had 250, my client had 250 because it was equal. The law says, and I don't agree with that, but the law says that my client was not underinsured because it's not 250 plus 250, it's 250 compared to 250. So the max he could get was 250. And he had back surgeries upon back surgeries upon oh. back surgeries that had to take place in the future which those can, you know, a, a doctor can charge seventy, a hundred thousand dollars. You know, certainly, um, uh, just the surgery can be really, really expensive, and then all the therapy thereafter is very expensive. So, you, you know, you thought you had that, that you were covered with two hundred fifty thousand dollars, but he wasn't. So that's why it's important in that situation to, if you're able to get an umbrella policy and have the umbrella policy tied into your underinsured motorist coverage. All right. So, so usually. Uh, Sorry. Uh, so that's what I. So if my umbrella lie—is it an umbrella liability policy that would do it? Correct. It's a, yes, it's an umbrella policy. Like for example, my my umbrella policy is on my home, and I have that tied into meaning that it um, matches the limits of my underinsured motorist coverage. Interesting. So, it, if my umbrella policy is a million dollars 
and my underinsured is 250, now I have a million dollars in underinsured motorist coverage. One million, not million 250. It's the higher yeah. of the two. Yeah, well, and it depends. I'm, uh, insurance companies are all goofy that way with what they'll be able to do. And well, states also, like in you know Georgia, for example, I know this because I have a friend of mine who, you know, who's done their practicing law. They, they can stack policies. So if you have three different cars and each one's insured with $25,000 in coverage, you now have $75,000 in coverage if you're involved in a car with or in a car crash with one of those vehicles. Oh, interesting. So interesting. it's different than Wisconsin. In Wisconsin, you can't stack. Well, so you also referenced, um, you know, the cost of that executive needing to have multiple back surgeries, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the other thing that comes into play is uh, lost wages. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, and where does that fall in? In, in that situation, uh, it's, it's sad. The person had to go on so Social Security disability. Yeah, that's and unfortunate. And that was their income thereafter. Now, this is where you go after, or, or, well, I say that, again, I'm a good reference for insurance agents because this is where short-term disability, long-term disability, the athletics of the world, yes. you know, those things, all of those should apply. If you have them, you you can use them in this, I guess, worst case scenario. Right. I'm, I'm going to agree with you. I'm not a big insurance person other than the fact that it is a very important component of financial planning is to protect yourself. And last, before we go into break, I want to ask you, uh, while we're on this topic, can you also talk about the difference between tort uh, with, with the full tort and limited tort? Well, full tort and limited tort, I guess, uh, in Wisconsin, it's it's either um, tort law or not, uh, I guess, contract law. So I'm not sure about the difference between full tort and, and, and limited tort. That might be a Pennsylvania thing. Okay. Um, when it comes to car crashes and things like that, um, there's a accident that occurs and then you have a case against the at-fault party for um tort law you know or somebody else causes negligence you could also have a first party case or based on contract and that would be maybe that's what you're saying is a limited tort because you have then the case based on your contract of insurance with whichever insurance company you have uh, and then that carries i guess different standards because there's bad faith that that comes into account and they have an obligation to abide by the terms of the contract as opposed to just simply uh, tort law and whether things are proper, reasonable, you know, those kind of terms. So in other words, it wasn't as simple of a question as I thought no. it might be. So, <laughs> you know, for what it's worth, I personally, and I've heard horror stories of someone who had limited tort, got really maimed and was unable to sue the other person, at least didn't as Pennsylvania, was unable to sue Excellent. the other person and if they got full tort, it enabled them to sue the other person, the other insurance company, what have you, for above and beyond the limits. And, you know, for me, I mean, that's a big jump in costs, but I'm telling you, I pay it. And if you can afford to pay it, do not underestimate the value of insurance. And, you know, it's one of those things that we say, again, we're not big insurance people other than the fact that we recommend that people protect themselves, but nobody has ever complained by saying when they needed insurance that they were overinsured. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, John, Very true. I will be back with you in just a few moments. Uh, please stay tuned. We'll be back with you after these uh, messages.
Do you keep up regularly with your investments? Where exactly are your hard-earned dollars going? Are you financially prepared for an emergency? I'm Mike Manager, founder of Manager & Associates Financial Planning. We believe that education and knowledge are powerful, and we want our clients to understand why we are making the recommendations that we make. It's your money, and you deserve to know where it's going, because it's not how much you make, it's how much you keep. So call us today to dis... Welcome back to Financial Planning Explained, and I'm here with John Growth, uh, founder of Growth Law Firm, and we had a couple minutes chatting during the uh, break here, and kind of want to talk about a couple other topics between now and the end of the uh, episode, which seems to go quickly, is I wanted to talk about elder abuse, as well as vaccine injuries, um, in light of you know all of the uh, vaccinations going on, and people there's two sides of the coin, and it's not intended to be political, but I do also have a client who is seriously injured from a vaccine from many years ago. And, you know, he was very high up the food chain at his corporation, and he's disabled. So can you talk to us about vaccine injuries? Very, very little known. If it wasn't for this client, I didn't even know it existed. Please talk to me about the subject. Sure, I can tell you, I didn't know it existed until just a few years ago. Uh, you know, we were lucky enough to uh, to uh, combine with purchase another law firm, and that law firm had uh, staff that all they did was vaccine cases. And then when I investigated that, I had to Google and go and say, "What is what? What's a flu vaccine case?" Uh, so there's um, it started back in the 1980s when vaccines were uh, more prevalent and there is the goal to try to get more people to take them. So you're going to try to figure out, you know, in the government's mind, how you can make it a, a lower barrier of entry. And um, the fear of getting the vaccine, not knowing what's going to happen was there, certainly. So 75 cents approximately of every vaccine went into this fund. And there's a vaccine injury compensation fund. It's a program that um, the vaccine manufacturers put this money in, and now I don't know how many billions of dollars are in there, but it's many billions of dollars wow. are there. And that fund is um, it's managed by the federal government. There are, are administrative law judges and Department of Justice uh, Department of Justice attorneys that defend the case. Um, so in our situation, what we do is we are uh, licensed to practice before the U.S. Court of Federal Claims. There's only one court in the whole world that deals with these injuries. And if somebody has, let's say a flu vaccine and they have certain injuries uh, within a certain number of days and they last for a certain period of time, then the case is compensable. And it's kind of that simple. Um, you have to gather all the information, make sure you have proof that this is the case. And if you don't have your proof, then you're not gonna not gonna get your compensation. So that that's, um, uh, the, there are no gray areas with that. It's got to be pretty black and white. Yeah, and, and, uh, and I, I have to imagine that it is extraordinarily difficult to prove a, um, a and, and I, I learned it, for, like I said, from the one client of mine who had a tetanus shot and was really beginning to show signs a few months later that, you know, going to his doctor, he's having nervous, uh, you know, nerve issues and stuff like that. Nobody could figure it out until someone threw out, this could be a vaccine injury. And lo mm -hmm. and behold, it again, he never heard of it, I've never heard of it. And 
You know, so my understanding too, uh, to, to your point, that part of the reason why this was done, and please correct me if I'm wrong, John, was that they wanted a lot of uh, the pharmaceuticals were concerned about being liable for the vaccines and the government stepped in and said, hey, you know, uh, hey, Mr. Pharmaceutical, uh, we're going to make it so that you're not liable. We as the government is going to take on that liability. Right. Yeah. So so the pharmaceutical companies, that's why they put the money into this fund. And then um, the pharmaceutical company is, I want to say off the hook, but they're not they're not the ones that are getting sued or they're not the ones paying out the claims. It's the fund that is paying out the claim. And, and the claim that, that that's paid, there are different levels, I'll call it. You know, there are table claims, meaning it's one that you meet certain elements and then you're going to get compensation because you've met those elements. There are other claims that are off the table. And those are ones, you know, kind of like your tetanus shot where you have a doctor that says, yes, this shot caused these injuries. And if you have a doctor that says that, and if the if the uh, federal government has a doctor that disputes it, then there's a judge who will decide which side is correct. And then if your doctor wins the day, then the fund is going to pay for not only your lost wages and your pain and suffering and those kind of things, but also separately, it will pay for all the attorney's fees. So oh, really? you don't. You know, it, it it's not contingency because you get your compensation and then attorneys, what we have to do is we have to keep our time, we have to bill our time, and then after the client gets their money, we have to submit our time to the to the fund, and then the, the federal government looks over our time to make sure we were reasonable, and then the fund pays us separately. So it's really, it, it it's a good program in that the client gets all the money they are supposed to get. That That's unlike a car crash. With a car accident, you know, attorneys get paid a, a contingency fee or a portion of the limits. So let's say the limits are $100,000, I'm going to get $33,000 and the client gets the rest. With the vaccine program case, if the limits are $100,000, or sorry, if the payout's $100,000, there are no limits. If the payout's $100,000, the client's getting $100,000. Right. But now the attorney gets separate funds. The But from your looking at it from a business perspective, and we're running low on time, I want to get to the elder abuse, but from the business yeah. perspective, um do you take on that case because if there's risk of you losing does the client pay you no the federal government does but if the, the client loses if you don't win the case does that mean you just don't get paid or does the if client pay you if we don't win the case and we have a reasonable basis for our beliefs and we had a doctor who said uh, we can petition the the fund to pay us and the majority of the time, we get paid win, lose, or draw. Oh, really? That's interesting. Okay, it's, very interesting. It's a fascinating, again, I didn't know it existed. It's, uh, and, and there are not many lawyers in the nation who do this. You know, we have clients who are international. We have clients who are in Europe, who are in Siberia. Because if you get a vaccine at any um, U.S. military base, um, you are, you're, you're in the program. Interesting. So lastly, and I don't want to miss this one, um, you deal with elder abuse. Yes. Uh, that is a so, very, so. very sensitive topic, particularly in the financial world, albeit I, I believe that it should be because the government is protective of, I hate to use the word 65 as elder because there's a lot of people who will shoot me because a lot of people are 65, but they determine that as 
anybody that the government tries to protect you, which I think they should. First of all, I think the government should keep the heck out. But separately, too much elder abuse in the financial services industry taken advantage. But I think the elder abuse that you're talking about is not as much on the financial side as it is like in nursing homes. Could you elaborate, please? Sure. And the number one thing we see with elder abuse cases or nursing home abuse cases is where a nursing home is understaffed. So when you're looking for a nursing home, you know, there are programs you can go at the, you know, the STAR system and look online, Medicare, Medi- um, uh, Medicare and the federal government has a, a rating system for nursing homes, whether there, there are complaints. Um, there are, every state has an agency that, that has to investigate or has to just monitor nursing homes. So you can go to that nursing home or go to that agency and then check your nursing home to see if they are a good nursing home, I'll say. But most of the time, what we're looking at is uh, understaffing because it's a for-profit business maybe. Um, And if it's a for-profit business, they're gonna save money by having fewer staff or not qualified staff. And the cases that we see are where somebody is left alone for too long and something bad happens. I mean, I've had cases just, sad cases where somebody is left alone in the shower or left alone uh, on the toilets um, wow. and left alone for long periods of time where your legs go numb and you fall over and the worst case scenario happens. Yeah, we uh, don't just know. Those, those situations can easily be fixed if you had an additional, just a CNA or somebody who was um, the, the, uh, the assistant to the assistant checking on individuals in a nursing home. But yeah. that's the number one thing that we see. Well, that's sad. John, you know what? This episode just blew right by. You've been very wow. informative. Yeah. Only wish... Thank you, know, you for having me. <laughs> it's, it's been a pleasure. You know, uh, you had sent over a thing to put up with your contact information. Unfortunately, apparently, there was too much stuff jammed into it. So what I'd like you to do is slowly tell people <laughs> how they can get a hold of you, your phone number or your website or what have you. Please do. Thank you. It's... It's really easy. It's growthlawfirm.com, G-R-O-T-H, lawfirm.com. Uh, Jonathan Growth, uh, if you Google Jonathan Growth Attorney in Wisconsin, you'll, you'll find me. The number that you can call or you can text, it's 414-999-0000. Huh. So it's pretty easy. That's an interesting phone number. Excellent. John, thank you very much. Um, This was just fascinating. I learned so much. And you had a list of a whole bunch of things to talk about, and we only got to a few of them. But, you know, this, to tie this into financial planning, uh, John brought up a lot of valuable points, particularly as it pertains to, uh, we didn't get into it, but, you know, if you're ever injured, you really need to think very quickly as to whether or not it is an actionable offense because there are steps that need to be done very early on. But more importantly, one of the things that, that I got out of this, mostly as it pertains to the financial planning, again is do not underestimate the insurance coverage that you have through automobile insurance. A lot of people try to skimp out to get their automobile insurance coverage. The prices are down. You know, I could save you money on automobile insurance. Well, how do they save you the money? Not because the insurance is better, but because they cut your insurance coverage. And next thing you know, you're, you know, you're in the hurt locker. So, you know, that is certainly one of the takeaways is 
make sure that you're adequately insured. John, thank you very much. I appreciate you being on the show today. Very informative. Uh, I wish you a wonderful day. And for everyone who is uh, watching, I hope all of the viewers learned something today. And thank you for joining us and signing off today. Mike Menninger, Certified Financial Planner from Financial Planning Explained. Look forward to seeing you for the next episode. Thank you. Thank you.